You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It's time for today's Lucky Land horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Turns and conditions apply. I want to be a producer with a hit show on Broadway. I want to be Welcome back to the Producer's Perspective podcast. Uh, if you ask people in the industry what is one of the biggest changes we've all experienced over the last couple of decades, everyone will answer one thing, the internet. They'll answer that, frankly, even if they don't know what the internet is. Uh, but that's the one big change, the one thing that's changed the most, of, or the industry the most over the last couple of decades. And when you think about it, we're all living at a very unique moment in history since we all witnessed the birth of the Internet, how it has changed the world and, of course, the business of Broadway. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, it's Ken. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast, and I hope it's pulling back the curtain on this business of Broadway. If you're looking to learn more about what makes this industry tick, go to my website, kendavenport.com, and sign up for my weekly newsletter. I'll send you one email a week, one article about what I'm seeing, trends, insights, marketing ideas on what's happening on Broadway right now. That's kendavenport.com. Hope to see you there and in your inbox. Well, today on the podcast, I'm lucky enough to be talking to the guy that taught Broadway how to use the internet. Uh, and that guy is Damien Bazadona, the president of Situation Interactive, the industry's leading digital marketing company. Welcome, Damien. How are you, Ken? Some of Situation's clients, well, how about that little teeny tiny show called Wicked? Never heard of it, right? Or that little company named Disney? Or maybe that thing on the Upper West Side called the Metropolitan Opera? So those few clients will give you uh, an example of the type of company that Situation is. Um, they are leading, leading the charge in bringing Broadway into the 21st century. Uh, what's really cool about Situation and what demonstrates how much of a pioneer they are in the space is they are one of the few theatrical vendors out there that has broken through uh, and into other areas. Situation has worked on projects for USA Television, Museum of the City of New York, and even last year's Super Bowl. I mean, how cool is that? Yet despite all those high-profile gigs, they still keep their feet firmly planted on Broadway, and that's because of the passion of their founder, Damien, who is here to talk to us today. So Damien, first question. You ready? Let's do it. Some people say Al Gore invented the internet. <laughs> on Broadway, I actually like to think of 
you being the inventor of the internet. So you are the Al Gore of Broadway, I've decided. Thank you. So we're, <laughs> we're going to get started with a very, very difficult question. Is how did you get started in the Broadway space, and especially with technology in Broadway? I have, uh, Ben Mordecai, who's a, a, for those of you who don't know, is a, a producer from many years ago, connected with me uh, probably around, it was my first show I worked on, I got connected to, uh, it was really, uh, King Headley was the first show that I really got connected to. I have, don't have a background in theater. Uh, in fact, I'd probably seen two Broadway shows my entire life prior to working on King Headley. I, I'd seen, I waited for about, I got tickets to Lion King, which I had to wait a year to actually see. I got the for, um, for Christmas, and then I didn't have, couldn't go until the next January. That's how hot the ticket was. And I had saw, I had seen Rent. Um, and, and Phantom around that time, maybe two or three shows at most that I'd seen. Um, I have, my background is, I, uh, sort of been live, I'm a live entertainment junkie. It's been my DNA. Uh, and I was a DJ and promoted nightclubs when I was like 15 all the way to my early 20s. So I, it's in my DNA, live entertainment as a whole. So I tripped into, my, my connection into it was I tripped into, I had done, I was connected, I did some small projects in theater, but really King Headley was the first thing that really drove me into the industry to learn about Broadway as a whole. Um, and that really was my connector in. And I, so I worked on that. And I remember, again, like, so first I was the guy that wore the tuxedo to opening night. And there was essentially three people that wore a tuxedo. It was like August Wilson, me, and Ben Mordecai, because I thought you wore a tuxedo to opening nights. So I learned quickly. I was the guy that would get there. I got there a half hour early. So I thought you were supposed to. So I came in like true fish out of water. Uh, and, but have fell in love. It's my favorite. It's, it's one of the best gifts that have happened in my life to have sort of been introduced to theater. And do you think your perspective about not being a theater guy has given you greater insight on how to better it in terms of its marketing? I think so. I mean, I think that the, I, I think, um, yeah, I do. Cause I feel like I'm not as connect now I'm connected to the industry, but I'm as connected to the people. I've, oh, I get a, a drive off of looking at um, the pulse of the audience. A lot of times where I sit in a theater, I want to be able to see the audience, feel the audience. I, that was what really drives me personally. I love the rush of the live experience. Um, so I, yeah, I think just, and I, I think there's a, a, a certain piece, because I think most people aren't, right? Most people aren't as connected. Like we're all on the inside. Uh, and I think most people aren't. And I think when you could talk to people, going to Broadway is a big deal for people in their lives. Like, so if you think about the average person that I know in the industry, they haven't bought a ticket on a ticketing system Maybe ever. They just haven't gone through the process. They probably see 10, 20, 30 shows, some a month, never mind a year. So I think the, the idea of respecting the tradition uh, and understanding the mindset of what it means to go, be lucky enough to go to Broadway Experience, understanding that and valuing that, it's kind of hardwired into my brain because in my whole life, most people outside of my theater life are not, they're, they're once a year Broadway. It's a big event for them. So I think understanding that mindset it makes personally allows me to respect it more and then i'm lucky to get to work in this industry because it's it's awesome so king headley was what year when, when did you start what year was that? i want to say around 2000 and 2001 somewhere in that period of time so what were you doing then were you do, was it the online revolution beginning were you, is that where yeah. you started so yeah, what so was your what was your day-to-day task in 2001 for online marketing or digital marketing well, first, so King Headley was the first show that I worked on, and I, I was part of another company at the time. I, I had a business partner in, in another company at the time. And I remember I went to one of the ad meetings. It was at Sereno Coin. There was probably 25 or 30 people sitting around the table. 
And my business partner looked at me, I think this was like months before the production started, and it was about a three-hour meeting, two or three-hour meeting, and my business partner looked at me and said, no way, I ain't doing this. I'm not, because we didn't even know what our payment structure was, we did nothing, so I'm not doing this. So shortly after that, not because of the show, I ended up splitting up with that business partner, and part of my agreement when leaving was saying there was a couple clients that came with me, one of them was King Headley. And so that was really when situ was called situation marketing at the time, and I split off. King Headley, Broadway was one of my first clients when I had started situation marketing. So I think that, so back then, I was a one-man band. Like, I would literally make the website. I would do all the promotional outreach. Like, I would go, it's really, in theory, it's not as, much, it's not as different strategically then as it is now. Strategically, it's all based on marketing principles. Who are we trying to find and how do we go try and find them? The significant difference today, obviously, is the toolkit I have has just changed dramatically. But back then, I was, I was a one-man band. For the first three years, I was a one-man band. I would build the website. I would do all the marketing and media. I would like use my credit cards to buy media. I would do everything, essentially, by myself. For the first, and, and that's where I learned how to program. And I kind of, I just learned, I'm self-taught by a lot of those pieces. I have a marketing, I have a bachelor's in marketing degree. That's kind of my background. So I know the marketing and technology, and just was fortunate enough to kind of pull those two together and do it for Broadway. So I did it for about three years. What did you, what were shows even do? I don't even remember. Of course, I was involved with them. What yeah. were we doing from an interactive? So we would buy like so. Think about it. we would buy Google search. Like we would do Google was a big driver then, but there were other search like Yahoo, Google. A lot of the similar players were around. We did a lot of promotional elements when things were starting up. You'd be able to do a lot more like on trade and there's just a lot. The online in 2000, 2001 had not really established currency. Like the the advertising platforms, there was no like set rates. It's kind of the wild west. So we could do anything. I would go. It was. It was essentially it was banner advertising, it was search marketing, it was like grassroots. I did a lot of like grassroots type promotion stuff, things that I couldn't do anymore now because they charge for them, right? So we'd be able to go and do a deal, give you a pair of tickets to see August Wilson, King Headley. In return, you give me all this other stuff. That stuff used to go a long way. Now they've monetized it all, so you can't really do the stuff you used to do. Um, I have what we did for King Headley. I built the mobile site for the Palm Pilot. Like I still have a picture of it, which I think is kind of funny. Uh, but I, I, in theory, it's not like that type of thing. There was no social platforms. There was no real mobile. You know, mobile didn't come around until over the past five, ten years. Um, yeah. Did King Headley have a MySpace page? Very curious. King Headley did not have a MySpace page. I don't even know if MySpace was around then. I don't think so. No, I think that was actually before its time. <laughs> didn't last long. Uh, so, but now you have this. So you have a big agency now, but yeah. you're not. I consider you different from the other big three, if you will, in terms of the agency. How, how does your agency and your business differ from the traditional Serena Coins or uh, the traditional ad agencies of any business out there? Well, I would say, like, so you have to remember the way we operate the company. We are not just a theater shop, and in a really good way. I say that, and is, although my love personally is, like, theater is actually my favorite group of clients. And I, and, um, but, we, you know, the agency operates on this principle that we believe the world is a better place when, people, when uh, people are doing things rather than having things, right? Like we believe just holistically, and the people we hire and me personally, that an experiential things that are experiential are just literally good for society, right? So with that being said, it kind of informs all the different types of things that we work on. And so everything from, so yes, we do a lot of work in arts, culture, theater, um, from like Broadway shows to the opera, the ballet, the dance, but also think of the other experiential brands, attractions, the Super Bowl, travel, tourism, um, like certain retail type experiences. That whole university, I, the art of that, I think so one of the big differentiators is like we really look at experiences as a whole, not specifically just theater, which I think really is, I've always liked to think of as one of our differentiators. 
because our focus isn't our our knowledge set isn't just how do I find a theater person to go see a show. I mean, our focus is always like what are the motivators that get someone off their couch into a location. And for Broadway, our growth path is going to require audience development. Like we, you know, we need mindsets that are sort of looking to find new audiences. And I feel like that's really I would I like to think of that as really one of our differentiators to the other agencies that are out there. Um, and the other other huge I would say probably differentiator is we just do digital. If if it doesn't come off of a web server, if I can't track it, I like I'm reluctant to want to do it. And I feel like everything over time is beginning to move to a web server component of some kind. Um, but the other three I, we value as our friends, and I think they do amazing work. You know, and we we work in partnership with them. Um, yeah. And when you were coming up and saying, "Hey, King Headley, you need a mobile site for the Palm Pilot." How much in, in this business, which is, I always say, 10 years behind every other industry out there, how much resistance did you get from, we should do this, we should do this, we should do this? I think the thing back. is, it's taken a lot of resistance, but not in a bad way. I think people took people took us in and me in very like, well. I think the part of it was, to be honest, I started when I was like, I was in a room of 25, 26. So I was relatively young and trying to sort of create, like, here's why you need to be doing digital stuff with a knowledge curve, which a lot of people just didn't, weren't digitally native. So you're trying to say, oh, digital's important, digital's important. And I feel like over time, so I think part of this is a trust issue, like, okay, I need to see and practice. So I play the long game and I try to, and I, one of the strategies I employ to this day, which actually has just come with maturity over time, is that it's, we, I try not, yes, we do digital stuff, but I think people hire us for our strategic thinking. So I feel like over time, the way you, the way you get people to feel comfortable with digital is talk to them at a strategic level. And then the tactical things can be explained later digitally. I feel like people get over that. When you begin to talk about people with just, and this is the problem with digital, like this jargony bullshit, right? Of like blah, blah, but you start to talk through people. I think it just throws up all sorts of red flags, which it just innately happens to anybody. You know what I mean? Like you go to a doctor's office or to buy a car and someone starts talking and literally talking above you or, or just with language you don't understand. It puts up all types of red flags and defenses. So, I we purposely try to uh, do, like talk about what we do. Even back then, I still do it now. Try to talk about it as though like in human language, and not talk down to people. I literally talk like a human being, because I understand CPMs and KPIs. Not normal people don't talk like that. So we try to. I think so. Part of it is just making it relevant to the people we're talking to. I think that is, but that probably is the single biggest way that we saw growth happening. Plus, the other thing too is if just look at online purchasing. The the most fascinating thing to me in theater is the growth of online ticket sales was really a consumer-driven demand. It's not like a bunch of people in the theater business said, let's sit around and find a better way to sell tickets online. It was consumers forced it, and which just happens in a lot of industries, and it just sort of has improved over time. There's been massive technology improvements. Like I think the ticketing systems have come a really long way, and I'm sure it's very difficult because there are a lot of people to please along the way. Uh, so come a long way, but I just think it's fascinating like how fast that happened. That happened really fast. Went from like, I think like when I was in the business, it was like 5% of sales. It's just crazy. It's just bam, 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 except over there. So that, that to me is, is sort of exciting. So part of the trend just sort of forced us front and center. Um, and and I, the, the other thing to say is just for the, it's, it is, this business is all about relationships and it's the long game. And I think it's how you treat every single person you cross paths with. Uh, is, that's why I still, I still kind of can't believe sometimes that we're still even here. Like, I'm happy to be. It's like the industry has allowed me to come in and hang out. No one's thrown me out yet. And I hope that, and I feel more confident in my own skin now, just having been here long enough. You feel like 
I've crossed paths with so many people, and I can I go to sleep with a very clean conscience that every single person I cross paths with I treat with respect, and, and most people reciprocate the same. I feel like that alone. That's why we're asking: Are we scared about competition? This all of this stuff. This industry is about relationships, so it starts there, and and I have to do great work. But about the relationships, which have taken years to form. Let's talk about some of that great work of, of the past decade or so. What have been some of your most favorite initiatives that you've you've pulled off here? Whether you know, well, the one I remember, yeah. of course, the next to normal, yeah. uh, tweeting the entire show yeah. out when Twitter was still kind of blowing up. But yeah. that's just one example. Yeah. What are your favorite initiatives that you? Well, I think, but the, I think the next normal one was great for just for two reasons. One, the basic idea for is is just how do we take the script that we took the story of next to normal and literally delivered it to Twitter, which I thought was a a, a way of when you're trying to bring new audiences to the table. I think the idea of bringing the actual show itself in a new form onto a new platform at a given moment in time is exciting, and the results showed it, like the amount of activity that got around that. I think that concept to me was very exciting. And then watching like the hit a million, we had, I mean, we had more followers than Starbucks. It was, it was crazy, like how fast that picked up. And it's like, you know, like you got lucky, right? So many things came together. But it was that part was exciting. And also the with you know David Stone. Look, when we had the conversation about it, it was there was no, it was just great that we agreed up front that it wasn't about hard selling tickets. It was about storytelling, and the tickets would follow. It was just everyone's on the same page. So that was that to me. I had such a great memory of. Because it was an innovative thing, producers supported it and really helped drive it, and the whole team got behind it. Like that just worked. Um, I thought we put the camera in hair. We put a camera in hair. At the end of the show, everyone goes up and they dance. And I thought we had this idea of how to put the camera in, where you can then every night record people dancing on a stage, which is like a, an amazing experience to say you dance on a Broadway stage. People pitch themselves to do that. You know. So the idea of to have this video there to be able to record it every night and capture that. And then allow people to share themselves dancing on stage, add hair through social channels, and just watch that response. Like you saw traffic double, you saw a whole bunch of things happen. That was exciting to watch that play out. And also behind the scenes, Joey Palms, a whole bunch of people pushed so hard to make that a reality. That took a lot of like, hey guys, we're gonna throw a camera in the theater. How do you feel about that? Like a lot of people put a lot of effort to that. That to me is exciting. You have like all these people come together to do something big. Because it opened the door to all other types of opportunities. Um, so I'd say those are the two of my favorite. I think the my personal one of my one of my other favorites is we worked on um, reasons to be pretty, and reasons to be pretty about sort of the whole. I think what does he calls he says his girlfriend looks normal, you know, normal or regular, whatever it was in conversation. But the whole the idea of the show is about you know vanity and a whole bunch of other things. But but during the show we, we launched a social experiment, which I love this campaign for a range, range of reasons. Before the show started, we said the show's going to start. The voice of God comes on and says, uh, normally it says, shut your cell phones off. And Ara said, uh, before the show starts, uh, we'd like to do a social experiment with you. Um, take out your cell phones and text the word pretty for, to 42903 to get started, and, and people text in. And then it hits you back with a question that says, on a scale of 1 to 10, how good looking do you find yourself? Uh, 1 being carrot top, 10 being Angelina Jolie. So let's just say you reply back with 7. And then it hits you back with another text message, and it says, now look around the theater and pick another random person. Uh, and how good looking do you find that person? So you say seven or eight, whatever you say. And then it says, great, now shut your phone off and we'll tell you and, and enjoy the show. And then as you walk out of the show, everyone gets a text message that says, just so you know, the average person found themselves better looking than the person sitting next to them. And what I what I love about that campaign, it got that on some nights we get 25% of the house playing. That is an enormous direct response number. Like 
off the charts. But the thing that I just, I've always felt this way about theater. I just feel like, what I feel like, which is my hope is where I think things are going, that there's no relation, I wish the communal component, the communal conversation that's happening on pieces of work, I wish there were more platforms to share that community piece in real time. Talk. Like when I saw Doubt, I was looking around the theater and going, what did everyone else think? You know, like, so imagine you can visualize that and show that in an interesting way that night, how the people, where you go to a show and you kind of go, who else is around me? Right? Like, imagine you could tell tonight there was 34% of the theater was, you know, whatever, from your hometown. Or like, you know, we're, we're talking about the history of my seat. Tell me, you know, there's something about that communal element that the curation of the audience is as important as the curation of the stage. And I think that, so, yeah, those are, those are like, Anything that you remember that you loved and thought was really going to work and then just didn't? Anything that you were disappointed in and that, you know, I often talk about, look, you never know. You come up with great ideas you come, that don't work or really yeah. the ideas that you think are never going to work and all of a sudden it explodes. Well, we did a, we did a test for Spider-Man, which um, where credit card free reservations, where the idea was they had an enormous theater and a fair amount of inventory that was going dead. So the idea was, well, what about if we allowed people to use their cell, cell phone to uh, text in but, and essentially have, we did on the website too, where you can reserve a ticket without putting down a credit card. And because, because it didn't really matter to me, if you were on the fence and you said, oh, I will reserve a ticket, the ticket was going to go dead anyway, right? So you're going to reserve a ticket. We thought this idea was kind of interesting because the average site only converts like 3 4% of the site. So you're kind of going to have 95% of people sitting on the fence. So give them like, like a restaurant, got to get a ticket, or why not? And we did an initial test, the response, once, if you entered in that reservation, the response, the percentage of you showing up was through the roof. And sometimes it was 50, 60%. You put your cell number in, you literally showed up at the theater like you said you were going to. And we were like, wow, this could be enormous. And we really pumped it, and it never hit the volume of people doing it that I thought it would have. I still think we're testing it now in different markets. I think there's something there. I admit sometimes I get fixated on an idea and I can't get off of it, so I just kind of keep pushing, 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 and I feel like I want to figure this out. Um, but I think that's it. But I, I m most, I, I'd say 99% of ideas don't fulfill my vision of where it could be. And But I'm good at sort of, uh, two things I think we're good at. One is we're very clear with clients on first and trying to hedge the risk that we're doing. So we'll, we'll create an idea, but we'll find efficiencies to say, even if this is a bust, there's still so many, here are the opportunities that we're going to make sure we, that happen. Right, and our clients know that in advance. So part of it is like we try. There's there's a lot of interesting ways, and I think you're amazing at this actually too. Too this idea of like how you can minimize risk on things. And I think that's important because that's part one. And then the second thing is I have a very short memory. Purposely, I don't really give a shit about what didn't work. Like I care because I'm going to learn from the mistake. I know in the back of my mind instinctually what worked and whatnot. But I try. I feel like if you, I, I'm on to like the, like I take it as a win that we lost. Because you kind of have to, because the money's gone, the thing is spent. And as long as we were clear, I always say the same thing. If you're clear on a huge idea, just be clear of the risks up front. Because if I can talk to a client and go, here are the risks, we all know it, we're all in it, and if it's huge, great, and if not, so be it. As long as I have that conversation and they sign off, then, I can, then it doesn't matter. Because we're both in it together, and if there's no get, these are, that's what I love about producers, they know there's no off. There's no, how can I guarantee that? Someone was asking me the other day, Dan, you sure it's going to work? No. No, if I was sure, I'd have, you know, I'd create 20 line kids, you know. So, yeah. And something I talk about being different today other than 10 years ago is the 
speed requirement to reacting to the market. The consumers move faster than they ever have before. And one of the best examples of that was uh, the if-then phenomenon yeah. at the Oscars. Can you describe a little bit about what happened and how your team responded to that? Because what, from sure. what I know and hear, yeah. you were really helpful in using what happened at the Oscars to your advantage. Well, first off, that is a great example because that's all just about communication and planning. I think that's the biggest thing, and that's what um, is just good. On that show in particular, um, the team is just well It's a well-organized machine. So we knew, okay, Sarah Wadine is going to be on the awards. So that's great. So then well, what happens is it triggers a whole set of things. So then we were prepared. So that room, you know, on our main conference room, um, turned into a war room that night. We were prepared. We had like five different people set up. And we had to sort of prepare for, you just don't know what's going to happen. And I wasn't even there. I was at home. I was watching it at home. And when, you know, when Travolta, it's just you're sitting there and you're like, I looked at my wife. I'm like, well, I don't even know, what, who was he talking about? I just couldn't even really believe it, how fast. But instantly, our team was like off to the races. And we had photo card created. We had a designer in there. Like we literally had a staff of people that can do all the functions that are needed, like a good photo card, a copywriter, the social expert. We had all these different components. And then within seconds, it was fired off. Like we had all these different things in action. So I always think about it, it's like the speed in which that happened to me is the is the more impressive thing. So it's difficult to run an agency like that so it, with that in mind. So your point is like spot on the speed in which these things happen. I, I, one of my favorite examples, I work on uh, Rock of Ages. They were performed in the Super Bowl during a couple performances on the, the site at, at MetLife Stadium. And uh, between sets, I'm walking with uh, one of the cast members who's in costume. And I'm walking with myself, my head of client services, and one of the cast members. And we're walking back to their changing room, which happened to be right next to the red carpet. And as we were walking straight towards the red carpet, Mitt Romney was walking right towards us. No security, no nothing. My head of client services says, this all happens within, within five seconds. Mitt, 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 hey, hey, do you mind taking a picture? And sure enough, Mitt puts his arm around the actor and, look, it's, and they kind of give a big sort of smile and they say, say cheese, click. Got this great picture and it's, it's Mitt, his wife, and the actor. And uh, within seconds, we had a post to Facebook. It was like the left and the right coming together uh, and posted with it. I mean, that whole thing. So think about that. That was not like, that was my head of client services. It wasn't like, a creative strategist or something, who took the picture, who had the insight, Jeremy, said, I'm going to take this picture. The actor knew exactly what to do. We sat there, we wrote the quote, and the producers gave us the freedom to post. Like, so think about that structure. That's incredible, right? So part of it is just, I think part of it is you try to create a system here that just builds trust and understanding the brand. That's why it's important to really understand your clients and have trust with your clients. But like that speed, imagine like in a corporate structure. So where do you think uh, the theater is going in terms of its use of technology over the next 10 years? What's the, the next big thing, the next current thing? The next big thing is because theaters are now connected like they've never been before. So in a whole in a whole range of ways. The fact that, look at variable pricing and how the speed in which that begins to happen, right? So even the, the there's no like house boards that have like the price, you know, the, the price. There's just literally, you've got uh, Wi-Fi in the venue, like all these different touch points that just literally change the entire game. So the fact that we're more connected, I think what's exciting is the best is yet to come. So like, so part of me feels like the in-venue experience, for example, is going to become just, there's a lot of opportunity there, right? So theaters now, by the end of this year, I would say about 75% of Broadway will be connected, like literally Wi-Fi connected. So think about what that means. That means you can go into a venue, you could now obviously get Wi-Fi like almost like a utility, 
like a, a bathroom or anything else. Well, these theaters are going to have that. But now, all of a sudden, when you walk in, I can dictate if you've been here before. Let's just say you're a subscriber. We could say, oh, subscribers get exclusive content. They're going to have four of their drinks. You could do all these different things. You could do, because you're also, the way we're setting it up, there's like the actual internet speed, like on Clothera Network. I can have camera. I, you could do, the, the, the canvas is unlimited. So what we're trying to do is, how can we make technology enhance the experience? It's not really, I don't want technology to get in the way of the experience. And that's where, that's where a lot of the conversation goes to. People go, ugh, Wi-Fi in the venue, now everyone's going to be on their phones. It's actually, in many respects, the complete opposite. Because a lot of the clients that we work with, Wi-Fi goes on, and during certain periods of time, we shut the Wi-Fi off once the show starts. So it actually, it literally serves as a vehicle to tell people stop. And think about all the different things you could do. It's just, it's really exciting. So we've had a, a range of conversations of what that could mean. We've had a range of conversations of what virtual reality could mean, certain tests and trying. But I think we're going through this like canvas of like really cool testing, which is just about to start happening. Things we weren't able to do in the past. This idea of like the, the ability to how, to how we have, it's really like the access to the data, which is kind of exciting that we just never had before. Ticketing systems now have what are called you know, these APIs that allow these things to sort of send around. So I think the canvas, the speed of innovation, is going to start to really go quickly. Um, that's the exciting part. And the venue owners are on board. You could get a sense that there's like this feeling of like, okay, we don't want to become irrelevant. And then and irrelevant could be, that doesn't mean, that's why I always get ner not nervous, but this conversation always goes to a place of, oh man, technology's going to kill this, the, you know, the live experience. I fundamentally disagree. It, it will kill it if we allow it to kill it. If you use technology as a vehicle to improve it, it could be, it could and should be an amazing experience. So you obviously work with a lot of producers, and what I love about you, and you describe how theater is about relationships, and you have fantastic relationships with everyone in this business. You've managed to push the business into a new era, but at the same time, not piss anyone off in the process, which I think is amazing because you've, you've helped the industry as a result of that. So you've worked with all these people, I'm sure you have your favorites and your least favorites. I won't ask you to name names, but not on the record anyway. Yeah. Yeah. But tell me about what the characteristics that you think a good producer needs to function today, not yeah. 10 years ago, yeah. what today or even tomorrow's producers need uh, in order to be great ones. Well, okay, so A, confidence. This is probably by far and away, if you ask me all the attributes, is confidence. Because confidence reigns in, it comes into everything. It makes all, so the average producer... Think of how many people you're overseeing in one way, shape, or form. You're the leader, right? So you've got all the cast and creative team. You sit in these rooms and you kind of go, holy cow. We have these like big meeting rooms. There's like 100 plus people walking around. And that producer is the leader. And that confidence is everything. Come hell or high water. So confidence is probably the first thing. The second thing is having a really strong, smart team around them. That's generally how I judge people. I could just tell by the people that kind of hang around and people that are around them. Really great producers generally have a... I'd say a very uh, solid, solid team around them because they have to know they can't know the answers to everything. They need to like kind of just really delegate because that's that's the thing that just kills. The thing that I think kills kills the productions is too many decision makers. It just crushes the process because what it does is it roadblocks speed. I mean, think of how much we talked about with speed, and you have to just be nimble because this is what no plan survives first attack. And entertainment. That's like golden rule number one. And then all of a sudden, you have these opportunities and these threats that just land on your plate. And the ability you need to you need to have an infrastructure 
and a team that sort of can go quickly and do what they have to do. But I think it's like clear lines of command. So even if there's multiple producers at the, let's say there's multiple producers, there's one decision maker there empowered to be the decision maker. I think, I, I would say like those are, I'd say confidence, leadership structure, the right team around them. Um, I think those are the, the big ones. And, and personally for, for me, I think a, a sense of not just kindness, but kindness and res respect and give the team members respect. I've always felt like most of the people that I've seen over the years, the people I have most respect for is they talk to the most junior person in the room the same way they talk to the most senior person. And they have an art to do that. Because the reality is the senior people sit at the table and they jibber-jabber what's going to happen, but the junior people behind them are the ones doing the work. And when you have, like I've got people that work, I mean, I, I was exchanging emails at 3, 4 in the morning last night. So we're going all day, all night. I can't make somebody work for 3, 4, you know what I mean? They have to want to do it. And you'd be surprised at how people, that, that, that really is amazing. I have a good producer that kind of rallies the team. You'll get a lot out of your team. And how you do anything is how you do everything. So it's like if that producer does that really well, it's going to be the same on the creative team. You're going to go right down the line. And not to a point of like being a doormat. Like not, it's just like, just or respect. It's really more respect than kindness. I don't usually just to be nice. I just need to be respectful. And I think that respect is a long way. And I've seen producers not do that. And all that happens is they get up, they walk out of the room, and everyone comes up with something else. They're just not really into it. And it's easy to fake your way in this business, in some respects, because it's infrastructure. You know, they're like, oh yeah, of course we're doing that. I can give you a sheet. I can give you 20 things that I'm doing to fill out a report and make you feel like it's good. But you want people who are like, really give a shit. If you were producing a really small show, or someone came to you and said, Damien, I've got a really small show. I'm trying to get it on the market. I've only got a few bucks. What would you tell a young producer or playwright that was self-producing their own work to do to get the word out there? Well, I think I'm a stunt guy. Like, I mean, I, th I know I think you fall in this camp too. Like, I don't. It's it's hard. Like, if I were self-promoting, there's no one answer to that. As much as to say, I think I don't think it matters how much money you have. I think an idea. I've never correlated big ideas with dollar signs. I think we're sort of in the same camp on that. I think it depends. It's about being disruptive but true to who, who and or what you're trying to say. And I love that. I mean, like, yeah, I've got, there's tons of examples I could think of, but it's just like, <laughs> it doesn't cost much to, you know, you could do this, there's, there's, I think those are the, the, the two, the kind of core things that I would say. It's like, you can't, um, and if I were, I think it's first off, the most important thing though, which I feel like sometimes this gets lost in the mix, create an amazing show. And just, because that is all that matters. I have so many, so many people who I've met with that start with why the the size of the audience that's going to like the show. And that is just, I just think is it, it's red flag to me because if you, it's just very difficult. You I tell a great story. You tell it, if you've got a great story and you invest in it, people will come. You have to believe that because the, the reality is if you don't have a great story, you don't stand a chance. So I think that that's the big thing. I tell young producers, if you've got something great, I would do that. And, and honestly, every single person that walks in the theater, I treat them like gold. Because you can do that. I've always said that. You stand at the door and shake every person's hand in a small room. Thanks for coming. They go, wow, that's really cool you did that. You know, like. That's a great answer, especially coming from someone who's built a business and a career on being so digital. You went to online, offline, offline yeah. communication, shaking hands, which is what I say all the time. Like, our job is to get people to have, to go to a physical location and have an experience live, we still have to focus on this stuff, yeah. regardless of how many AdWords we buy and websites we buy. No, I totally agree. I totally agree. 
Okay, last question. I want you to imagine that the genie from Aladdin shows up on your doorstep and says, Damien, you've been a very, very good boy. I'm going to grant you one wish. You can change one thing about Broadway, anything you want. Only one, the thing that keeps you up at night, drives you crazy, makes you mad, whatever it is you want, but you only get one thing to change with a snap of a finger. What would you change? That there's never an empty seat. And I have qualifiers to that. But I would say that it that it's it's the thing that makes me the most frustrated, but most frustrated, is the fact that we have as many empty seats as we have when there are so many people who would give they would give so much to have sat in that seat. And that's in that it just kills me. You see a show that's got that's sitting that you ever go to a show like in February, like right now, and you walk around and you see it and you're like, This is just horrible. And then I can go we work with a fair number of schools and I could tell you I could the, the teachers there, the faculty, the people in the kitchen, they would die to go see that show. And it just kills me that there are seats just like that. It's a waste. So I'd say that would be the one thing I'd change. Any ideas on how to do that? I do. I do. I think we need to start on recognizing. The first place to start is recognizing that two million seats are going to go dead every year. Period. Just is statistically the same every single year. It's flatlined. Every year, 15%. Not any 15, 14, 13, 18. 15% goes dead every single year. So if we accept that, then all of a sudden there is an argument to be made. You could start taking those 15% of tickets take them off the rack and begin to think about these 15% of tickets from a point of view of audience development. Because it changes the dynamic. Because right now you get zero for that. So then all of a sudden it becomes the the value, it's, it's like the value of that ticket is based on the audience, not necessarily like on the ticket price. Right? So how do you value that audience now? So it's just kind of fascinating. Because if you accept that, because that's just, just math. Right, so the median show—I don't know—the median show is going to have about fifteen percent. So imagine you're a show coming in in the fall. Would you take fifteen percent of your inventory, taking it off sale, and you're going to charge your marketing and advertising teams to say, "Who is it that we actually want in on this show?" Because these, again, in the back of your mind, these tickets are dead anyway. We're not getting them. statistically; these will be gone. So all of a sudden, it changes the dynamic. So that doesn't mean you need to give them away for free, but the conversation goes, "Oh, that's interesting. I want to get this type." I want to get this type of person. And they're never, and right now the barrier to those people generally coming is we have a ticket price that they don't value. Yet we want them in the venue. So flip it around, you kind of go, how much am I willing to pay for that person? It doesn't have to be. It's, just, it's all incremental. It kills me. And that model, I think it should be very interesting. So then you start to go into these different markets, and like, that to me is the path to audience development. Because you start to look at that and you kind of go, wow. All of a sudden, like, I, I literally have conversations with people. I'll say, I want to buy a ticket. I'm raising money to buy tickets for a show. And they'll say, our student rate is $45 a ticket. And I'm like, I can drive a truck through your orchestra. And we're, and I, but I can't get you the, like the 45 or I'll get you the 45 or whatever it is. But the reality is, I know I'm not the only person. They're turning away people for no reason. And I understand why, because there's a feeling as though it's going to distress other portions of the ticketing ecosystem. Lost revenue. It's just, we got to stop that. 
And also, and the way we currently, I can go on this forever, but the way we think about audience development is like, it's last minute. So we're going to have tickets next Thursday. How can we get seats in the venue? How do we get people in, in the venue? And it's just crazy pants to me because I could have told you that a year ago. And there is a chance, a chance, small chance, that you might be that hot show that defied that. So what was the risk lost? You had put in people that you know would be great ambassadors for that show, so that's the risk loss. If you're that hot, that 5 or 10% would be peanuts. So it, it's irrelevant. So I think that's, that's my long answer to it. And I think all of you out there listening right now can see why Damien brought us into this, uh, into this decade and why he's going to certainly bring us into the next one. That's a fantastic answer about audience development. And again, has nothing to do with digital, which is why Damien's such a big strategic thinker and why, to your point, you think uh, clients come here, and I agree. Uh, thank you so much for being with us. All of you out there, thanks for listening again. Don't forget, send any suggestions you have for future speakers, and go on to theproducersperspective.com, subscribe, so you can make sure you don't miss out on the next podcast. Thanks so much. We'll see you then. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.